Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Welcome back. Before we begin, I have two requests of you. First, I am running low again on beloved quotes and lines from you guys reading, so I am asking for more. Send me a bit of something you've read and loved and tell me why it touched you. I love sharing these listener contributions at the end of every episode, and I always need your help to keep it going. So you can always leave a comment on the show notes or send me an email at staycurious at cindygivinoli.com. Second, it is such a huge help getting my podcast found by new listeners when you leave a rating or a review. So of course, I would appreciate it if you would do that. It makes a huge difference and I would really be grateful. So thank you so much. So some things that are helpful to know as we begin today. Again, no major spoilers, but some minor ones. So as always, if you are sensitive to that, skip this fiction week. We are going to be talking today about Ta-Nehisi Coates' amazing book, The Water Dancer. And it's told from the first perspective of, first person perspective, excuse me, of Hiram Walker, a man born into slavery in Virginia and who has a mysterious gift. In the excerpt I'll be sharing today, Hiram is in Philadelphia, welcomed into the home and extended family of brothers Raymond and Otha White, free men who are active in the Underground Railroad. Now, if you've never read Ta-Nehisi Coates' work, I encourage you to do so as quickly as you can get your hands on it. He has such an exceptional mind and gift with words, and both his fiction and his nonfiction has impacted me deeply. Now, before I move on here, I would just like to take a moment and revisit some of the points that I made way back in episode 16 when we were talking about Leah Johnson's fantastic YA novel, You Should See Me in a Crown. Now, again, I am a white, cisgendered, straight woman from a mostly middle-class background. And so, again, I cannot pretend to have experienced firsthand what it is to be a member of the marginalized and victimized community that our protagonist in this book is or to share that particular family trauma. And as such, I recognize that I am running the risk of missing important perspectives here. Now, there are big macro social justice conversations that this book invites us into. And in the show notes, I will link some of the people leading those conversations, people far better qualified than myself to speak and teach around the numerous questions of race and generational trauma and equality and social justice that could be raised here. Please take a moment to engage in this conversation with deep curiosity and openness and a willingness to listen to people who are approaching these topics with nuance, depth, experience, and knowledge. I feel very fortunate to live in a time when there are so many rich voices guiding this learning. Now, also, as I said in that episode, this podcast focuses on the micro, on the universal struggles of being human. 
And again, while I can't speak directly to what it feels like to be a person in or escaped from bondage, nor descended from people who were traumatized in this way, in every excerpt that I share here on the podcast, I am seeking ways to apply the wisdom and ideas I find in the writing and storytelling in each piece to all of us as we move through our lives. This podcast is ultimately about how each of us can harness our curiosity to live rich and meaningful and connected lives. And so that is what I continue to focus on here within the context of every story I share on this show. As I've said before, it is very important to me to share a wide variety of voices on this podcast. And it's equally important to me that I read and consume voices outside of my own particular demographic bubble. Curiosity is a key tool for understanding and empathy, and I see that play out every time I hear or read or watch a story of any experiences outside of my own. This is precisely what I'm talking about when I talk about the power of story, and part of what we talked about in episode 14 as well, right? Again, we cannot experience every possible experience in this life, but we can experience the full range of the emotional spectrum as a human in this life. And when we apply the things that we've felt and we deeply understand that every single person we meet from every single walk of life has felt all of those same things, that is when we can access our empathy and compassion for all of us doing this work of being a messy and imperfect human moving through our messy and imperfect lives. So I will continue to share stories with characters and by authors who are different from me, who have different life experiences from me, and draw out the universal themes and struggles of our shared humanness here on the show as best I can. And as always, I invite you to reach out if you feel that I've addressed any of this work in a way that feels wrong or appropriated in any way. I am also learning here and am invested in approaching this work in a way that is empowering for all of my listeners and not harmful in any way. All right, so with all of that in mind, let's get into today's passage. Here we go. This is from Tanahisi Coates's phenomenal novel, The Water Dancer. After supper, we took coffee and tea in the back salon. There was a piano there, and one of the younger girls seated herself and began to play. What I remember more than any virtuosity was the gleaming pride in all the eyes of the White family at the talents of this child. And I remembered how I had talents too as a child, but that my own father wished them to be in Little May. I was an amusement, a source of laughter. Watching that little girl encouraged in her pursuits, rewarded in whatever genius she had, and we all had some, I saw all that had been taken from me. Mm, this gets me every time. Okay, so I have two main points that I want to make about this. And while they're both pretty straightforward, I still think they're really worth some conversation. First, where Hiram says, what I remember more than any virtuosity was the gleaming pride in all the eyes of the White family at the talents of this child. He's far more moved by the pride and encouragement by the family of the child as she played the piano than he is by how well she played. 
the quality of our playing is pretty much irrelevant, right? And I know that we've talked about this before here on the podcast several times, in fact, but again, that pride and encouragement rendered this child seen by the people she cared about, gave her a safe place to explore and display the talents within her, regardless of her, quote, virtuosity. This matters. This visibility and recognition by her family and community of something she loves all contribute to a sense of belonging and of being valuable, not for her skill, but for her humanity, for her very existence as an individual. The encouragement she has given by her family here is part of what creates an environment of trust. And that trust empowers her to play the piano, certainly, but I would imagine that it reaches far past her music. If she's being encouraged in her music here, she's likely being encouraged in many of the other ways that matter, right? It likely affects how she sees herself in other pursuits, the level of self-respect and belief in herself that she carries forward into her adulthood, her ability to face challenges and see herself as capable. Would we genuinely encourage one another? The impact is never solely in the one area being directly addressed. It can register so much deeper. And the reverse is true as well. When we dismiss, make light of, or actively discourage someone in their pursuits, it also has a deeper impact. You know, we do this all the time to children. We humor them when they show us their drawings or the song they learned that day on their recorder at school, right? We wink at each other over their heads as they read us the story they wrote or show us the invention they made. We pat them on the head with a, that's nice, honey. Instead of getting really interested, instead of asking for more information or encouraging them to explore it, to stay with it and see what comes of the play and experimentation, you know, who hasn't been there excited about something that grabs your imagination, excited to show it to someone you care about or talk about or talk to them about the experience and are met with indifference or humoring? How quickly can that excitement turn into embarrassment? This is where we learn to dismiss our own loves and our own talents, where we learn to qualify what we've made with self-deprecation or sandbagging. And, you know, I don't think what Hiram says about his own experience of having his talents seen as an amusement to be laughed at, as being something taken from him, I don't think it's an overstatement. When our talents are dismissed or ridiculed instead of encouraged, something is taken from us. Some belief in our own abilities and capabilities, in our creativity and invention, and more deeply than we might realize, some sense of our own value. It is not our job to diminish the aspirations of others, no matter whether we find them far-fetched or don't understand them. It's not our job to limit someone's dreams or ambitions and certainly not something they simply find pleasure or joy in. You know, there are professional musicians and artists and actors and athletes and CEOs and best-selling authors and all sorts of people doing the things that so many people are quick to brush off as, as pipe dreams. But someone gets the part, someone sells the book, someone gets signed. So who are we to say that it's not possible for this person in front of us? 
who are we to say that it's not possible for us? You know, sure, there are limitations to how far we might go. Maybe we never get tall enough to play pro basketball, right? Or we simply never quite excel to the point of making it as a big-name concert pianist. But no one needs to be told that before they even begin. It's something that can and will be discovered for oneself if that's the case. And also, making money at something is actually not the only way that it has value. There may be joy and fun to be had in the pursuit itself, the pursuit of learning and growing and practicing and playing with whatever it is that catches a person's fancy. Seeing that interest as something valuable and encouraging that person in it is how we allow them to be fully themselves and allow them to belong. And because I always get a little pushback on this subject when I say it, let me say for the record that this doesn't mean that there is no place for honest evaluation, critique, and instruction. If you are a teacher or a parent, inevitably in order to teach other lessons that matter, it may be necessary to do these things. But I want to say again that delivery matters. You know, critical feedback, if necessary, can be given in a deeply constructive and encouraging manner. It can be given in a spirit of actual and real collaboration and with enthusiasm for effort and growth and movement with a real focus on what was done well. I have always despised the term brutal honesty. I hate it. I don't know if I have ever been privy to a situation where honesty was served by being brutal instead of compassionate. Brutality shuts people down and puts them on the defensive. In most cases where honesty is called for, and especially when it's necessary in a situation that may be tender, giving it in the kindest and most supportive and enthusiastic way is far more likely to get it actually received and applied. In an article entitled The Feedback Fallacy, published in the Harvard Business Review back in 2019, Ashley Goodall and Marcus Buckingham questioned the value of harsh feedback in terms of actually improving performance in a corporate setting. It is a fascinating article, and I will, of course, link it in the show notes so that you can take a look for yourself. But the point that they make is one that I want to touch on quickly here, and it can be summed up in um, this quote from the piece. So, quote, The search for ways to give and receive better feedback assumes that feedback is always useful. But the only reason we're pursuing it is to help people do better. And when we examine that, asking, how can we help each person thrive and excel, we find that the answers take us in a different direction. To be clear, instruction, telling people what steps to follow or what factual knowledge they're lacking can be truly useful. That's why we have checklists and airplane cockpits and, more recently, in operating rooms. They go on to say, what we mean by feedback is very different. Feedback is about telling people what we think of their performance and how they should do it better, whether they're giving an effective presentation, leading a team, or creating a strategy. And on that, the research is clear. Telling people what we think of their performance doesn't help them thrive and excel. And telling people how we think they should improve actually hinders learning. This is huge, right? Now, later in the article, they dig a little deeper into this. And so one more quote here. They say, 
Another of our collective theories is that feedback contains useful information and that this information is the magic ingredient that will accelerate someone's learning. Again, the research points in the opposite direction. Learning is less a function of adding something that isn't there than it is of recognizing, reinforcing, and refining what already is. There are two reasons for this. The first is that neurologically, we grow more in our areas of greater ability. Our strengths are our development areas. And then they go on to say, second, getting attention to our strengths from others catalyzes learning, whereas attention to our weaknesses smothers it. Okay, again, I really, really encourage you to read this article in its entirety, especially if you are someone who is in a position that requires you to give evaluations or feedback. It's pretty mind-blowing initially, but when we pause to think about it, it makes so much sense. You know, all of this to say, genuine encouragement is a powerful tool for growth and feelings of acceptance and belonging. Discouragement dismissal, indifference, and harsh feedback, on the other hand, as Hiram recognizes in his own experience here, does truly take something from a person. And as Goodall and Buckingham point out in their piece, it truly inhibits learning and growth overall. So how can we apply our curiosity here? I invite you to think about one person in your life and consider some way that you might encourage or support them in something that they love or that lights them up or Perhaps think about a colleague or student or employee with whom you might apply the principles discussed in the feedback fallacy. Get curious about what this might look like, about how you can do it with honesty and integrity. You know, hollow encouragement is definitely not what we're talking about here. It needs to be the genuine article. And while you're at it, get curious about what this looks like inside your own inner dialogue with yourself. What happens when, instead of picking apart something you did, a presentation at work, an event you hosted, some creative project, you looked for its strengths, the parts that you did really well? What sort of energy does that give you when you start thinking about the next one? Now, the second point that I wanted to make about this passage is one that I've touched on quite a bit lately, but truly it bears repeating again and again and again. Hiram says, watching that little girl encouraged in her pursuits, rewarded in whatever genius she had, and we all had some, I saw all that had been taken from me. Now, while we've covered the cost of discouragement and what that can do, indeed, it does take something significant from our lives, I want to come back to that section right there in the middle. Rewarded in whatever genius she had, and we all had some. Again, this is that largeness within us that we talked about in episode 18, the vast gifts and possibility we each carry within us. You know, when I think of this idea, for a moment, I always think of this section from Elizabeth Gilbert's fantastic book, Big Magic, which I know I've mentioned here before because it is a go-to for me when I'm seeking encouragement for my own pursuits. She says, quote, because if you can't learn to travel comfortably alongside your fear, then you'll never be able to go anywhere interesting or do anything interesting. 
And that would be a pity because your life is short and rare and amazing and miraculous. And you want to do really interesting things and make really interesting things while you're still here. I know that's what you want for yourself because it's what I want for myself too. It's what we all want. And you have treasures hidden within you, extraordinary treasures. And so do I, and so does everyone around us. And bringing those treasures to light takes work and faith and focus and courage and hours of demotion. And the clock is ticking and the world is spinning and we simply do not have time anymore to think so small. I love that. Now, if you haven't yet discovered your own genius, the extraordinary treasures hidden within you, know that it is not because you lack them. You have them. Every one of us does. Sometimes they get buried under the expectations of others or conditioning that we might not have even known we were subjected to, or maybe under the dismissal or derision of someone else's fear or their conditioning. You know, in this section of The Water Dancer, we can see how Hiram's own talents and genius were buried under his father's mockery and rejection and what that stole from his life. It can also be easy to miss our own talents and genius. You know, we think what comes naturally to us comes naturally to everyone, and so we don't recognize our gifts. But again, apply your curiosity here and dig those treasures out that are hidden within you. Work to see and celebrate all the things big and small that you have to offer. That is how each of us both lives our own richest and most fulfilling life and how we can offer our greatest service to the larger world. You know, as Elizabeth Gilbert said here, bringing our treasures to light requires work and faith and focus and courage and hours of devotion. And you know, that is some scary, sometimes very difficult stuff, right? And it could certainly use eyes gleaming with pride from our family or our community, regardless of our current virtuosity. Who knows where Genius Rewarded might take us or might take those we love. That reward doesn't need to be financial or, you know, something globally recognized. It comes in the form of genuine encouragement and appreciation. Get curious and find your gifts and your strengths, your genius and your talents. Find them in others. Acknowledge them. Celebrate them. Value them for the joy and light and fun and fulfillment they create for the rewards, both tangible and intangible, that they bring to our lives and our world. Let your eyes gleam and your talents be pursued. Bring your extraordinary treasures to light. Again, this passage was from Ta-Nehisi Coates' powerful novel, The Water Dancer, which of course I will link for you in the show notes at cindyjuvenoli.com backslash podcast. Read this book. Truly, it is captivating and beautifully crafted. And once I picked it up, I could not put it down. All of his work has been like that for me, and I just love his style. Alrighty, so for today's listener contribution, I have a quote shared by Emily T. She says, You mentioned John Green's book, A Fault in Our Stars, a while back on your podcast, and it reminded me that I had a copy of his book, Looking for Alaska, on my nightstand, still unread. If it's okay to share another quote from one of his books, this one from Looking Looking for Alaska stood out to me. Everything that comes together falls apart. Everything. The chair I'm sitting on, 
It was built, and so it will fall apart. I'm going to fall apart, probably before this chair. And you're going to fall apart. The cells and organisms and systems that make you, you. They came together, grew together, and so must fall apart. The Buddha knew one thing science didn't prove for millennia after his death. Entropy increases. Things fall apart. And Emily says, This quote just really caught me and felt like a strong reminder that my life is, at the risk of sounding cliche, short. That everything I'm working so hard and stressing out so hard to build will inevitably someday fall apart and no longer matter. It felt like a call to pay better attention. I don't know if I know exactly know how exactly to do that while still also making something of my life, but I do know that it matters to me to figure it out. Thank you for giving me a reason to notice quotes like this. I love your podcast and look forward to each new episode. Thank you, Emily. I really appreciate that. I love that selection. And I haven't actually read Looking for Alaska yet, so I will definitely add it to my list. I really enjoy John Green's work, and I loved his new collection, The Anthropocene Reviewed. So definitely check that one out, too, if you like this. Okay, so that is it for today. I have a selection from Elizabeth Tova Bailey's small but mighty book, The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating, for you next time. Until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.